Hello and a very warm welcome to The Gold Podcast. I'm Mark Koskela and I'm delighted to be bringing you yet another great episode. My usual co-host Helena Beer is taking the week off hosting duties this week as she's been in beautiful Dubrovnik attending the next Farmer Summit. But don't worry, she'll be appearing a little later on in this episode, as well as bringing you an exclusive interview with Dario Safarich, chairman of Next Farmer, in a special bonus episode this Thursday, so do look out for that. But for today's episode, I'm holding down the fort to introduce a fantastic interview with Emma Booth, who's the Executive Director, Global Business Process and Insights Lead at Amgen. Helena chatted with Emma a couple of weeks ago before they both jetted off to sunny Dubrovnik and met in person, and it offers some great insights on all things R&D. But to kick things off, as ever, I'll be bringing you the latest updates from the industry in Things You Might Have Missed. Off the back of Mental Health Awareness Week here in the UK and Mental Health Awareness Month in the USA, Johnson & Johnson has launched a campaign called Depression Looks Like Me, created by and for the LGBTQ plus community. The campaign seeks to normalise conversation around mental health and depression and in turn empower members of the community to seek out mental health care when needed. The campaign shares stories from people living with depression, as well as details on possible treatment options and LGBTQ friendly resources, including links to online trained counsellors and vetted support hotlines. Members of the LGBTQ community are three times as likely to have a mental health condition compared to the general population. So this campaign is a great step forward in encouraging the community to come forward and seek out help. Johnson & Johnson work closely with the National Coalition for LGBTQ Health, as well as leading mental health and LGBTQ plus advocacy organisations to develop the campaign, which is part of the company's broader Our Race to Health Equity initiative. Another company seeking to make a change this past week was Merck with its latest awareness advert urging parents to vaccinate their children against HPV. It frames HPV vaccination as a cancer prevention tool rather than a protection against sexually transmitted disease and recommends that children as young as nine should be encouraged to receive their vaccinations in the USA. The advert has quite a cheery tone compared to Merck's previous ad encouraging HPV vaccination in 2020, which saw parents sternly standing between their child and the camera telling the virus to back off. Hopefully ads like this can encourage a further rise in routine vaccinations after their steep drop off during the pandemic. Something else that caught my eye was a report examining accessibility to healthcare for patients in rural areas published by Farisa Life Sciences. From its survey of 4,751 patients, it found that there was only a 1% difference in access to smartphones and data plans between rural dwellers and their urban counterparts. Yet only 61% in rural areas said they used the internet to search for health information compared to 68% of urban users. Now that's quite interesting to see. People in rural areas on the whole have less access to doctors, but are simultaneously less willing to use online tools to help manage their health issues. Respondents to the survey said more personalised content and disease-specific education would encourage them to give more attention to digital marketing. Now, next up, we have our interview for today's episode, which is with the fantastic Emma Booth. While Helena and Emma got together virtually to record this interview a few weeks ago, as I said, the two met in person in sunny Dubrovnik last week, where Emma delivered a fantastic presentation on her vision for steering R&D and medical affairs into the future. 
Today, she digs into similar topics as well as a host of other insights on themes such as mass communication strategies, debating whether quality is better than quantity, the power of data, and the importance of mentoring her colleagues to succeed. It's a fascinating interview, so let's listen now. Hi, Emma. Welcome to The Gold Podcast. It's wonderful to have you with us. Looking forward to having a good old chat. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me to join you today. And equally, I'm very much looking forward to the discussion. Wonderful. That's good to hear. So to kick off and to kind of set the scene, um, can you tell us why you decided to embark on a career in the pharmaceutical industry? Thank you for the question. Yes, I um, have always had a very keen interest in science and um, indeed I studied biomedical sciences um, at Durham University in the UK. I quickly realised though that I wasn't really set for a life in the laboratory. Um, Too many failed uh, tests and uh, (laughs) assays that that led me to kind of be a little bit discouraged. Um, But equally combined with my love for English language, for communication and engagement with people. So um, I really looked for something that was going to allow me to combine a lot of my passions and interests and my strengths. And um, it fell really naturally into the pharmaceutical industry. That's brilliant. Nice that that you could kind of take a step back and, and see what all the options were and, and manage to find something that that's ended up being really rewarding. So you worked as a medical writer and in medcoms before moving into a more strategic medical role. Um, what lessons did you learn about communication that you keep in mind even in your work today? I think uh, that's a really great question. And, you know, coming back also to your comment on on the previous question uh, about taking that step back. And that was that was something that I really um, needed to do. So before I ended up studying biomedical sciences, I'd, you know, always had this ambition to be in medicine. Unfortunately, during my uh, end of end of year exams, when I was, you know, just an 18 year old, um, I suffered from really bad migraines, which really impeded my ability to perform in, in those exams. Um, So I fell, you know, then into biomedical sciences, um, which was still, you know, great because it gave me such a broad overview of, of, um, you know, many of the disciplines that are involved in, in medicine. Um, And so, you know, taking that step back again and looking at where my strengths really were and how I could do something that I would both enjoy and and be good at. Um, Again, it it landed in in medical writing. So I started uh, my career really in the medical communications agency space and um, built a a vast experience in in serving medical information, um, providing information for uh, any um, pitches, um, and then really working more in structured areas as a medical writer. And I think having exposure to as an agency really every type of media and every type of request that may come um, as well as needing to be creative and and innovative to be uh, competitive and and to win the the opportunity to do the work Um, I think those those parts really played me well in my early career Um, and as you grow in your confidence and um, again continue your career and experience they're things that you can continue to apply 
um, I think some of the other principles have also been really considering the the story. So storytelling became quite um, the thing uh, to really lead with a few years ago. And I think it's really true because building your message and creating that association, it, it re- helps the reader or the, the consumer to really retain the information for longer. Um, and again, continuing to build upon the story over a certain a certain period of time and not having disconnected um, events or communications or activities they're things that really um, you know have have kept or remained in in my mind uh, today as well that's brilliant really interesting thank you um so Arguably, engaging healthcare professionals with mass communication strategies is becoming increasingly ineffective. I think we hear hear that um, quite a lot. So um, to what extent um, should it be a case of quality, not quantity, do you think, when it comes to engaging HCPs? I absolutely agree. Um, I think as we've made a transition to a more digital space, um, you know, the technology has has enabled us within the last uh, two years. It's it's come along, you know, in huge leaps in order to um, facilitate the the need for that transition. But at the same time, some of the mindset change hasn't. um, And I think we've quite rigidly still stuck to having, you know, 90 minutes of engagement because that was what we would do if we were face to face. In a, in a venue, in a uh, conference center or having an all day meeting. Um, so I think, you know, we have started to look at metrics. I, the, the biggest um, assistance here really is that um, looking at your data. So if you have a platform and you're seeing engagement and you're seeing people join for, you know, potentially the first five minutes, but then you see a drop off or you see that those that join and, and remain connected, they they stay connected for 15 minutes or or so on. We, we, we've really spent some time analyzing digital behavior in order to inform uh, this. And uh, again, you know, take into understanding um, when it is that people are are able to connect and join because our lives are very different now. Um, and um, we're seeing that little and and often is is very much more um, engaging and uh, encouraging people to come back um, rather than you know continuous um, bombardment or, or or huge length of um, information. Equally, we see that when people join and, and look at things on demand, um, often they'll navigate to the conclusions and maybe just consume the last five minutes. So instead of, you know, having a, a long presentation, is it more appropriate to, to provide more short segments or pictorial or infogra- infographics, um, really detailing the key information? Um, because we are in this, is, this world now where we want um, to know everything and consume everything straight away. And we're, we're not in the world in the past where we would go and look for an, an index of an encyclopedia and then go to the actual volume we need and, and look it up. So the world has, has very much changed and, and we need to provide the information concisely and, and uh, appropriately. And I think at the same time, retaining the scientific credibility. And that's the, the balance that, that's the, the problem or the challenge is really ensuring you're, you're keeping what you need, the essential elements and, and not degrading or, or going away from that, but still finding a way to, to communicate in a, in a more concise way. 
Yeah, that's a really important balance there, isn't it? And I really liked what you said there about mindset and the fact that that, that needs to kind of catch up with the, the technology as well. I thought that was a really interesting point. Um, so um, you work a lot in um, data. So um, what obstacles do you think exist that the industry needs to overcome before the full potential of data initiatives can be unlocked? Um, it's a really great question and, and it comes a little bit back to mindset again. Um, so a lot of the types of activities and initiatives that are ongoing in, in R&D, in the pharma industry and um, are really, you know, very disruptive. And as a result, they have a huge impact, not only to um, the external healthcare ecosystem, but also to staff um, and helping people to see how they can optimize and, and use information in new ways and, and to form decisions and, and take, I guess, more confident decisions is um, a, a challenge. So we go from having real subject matter experts within the organization that have, you know, 30 years in, in the um, field um, to now needing to also analyze huge amounts more of information um, beyond what could be consumed and known by anybody. And then we have to rely upon you know, the reports or the feeds, um, trends, uh, algorithms, and, you know, having people to understand the value of um, also, you know, in including this information in their decision-making process is, um, you know, very, very disruptive. And, and you do have to, you know, apply a huge amount of change management and effort there um, to enable people to join you on the journey and see the, the value and benefit. I think, you know, starting off small and having people involved in a, a kind of activity or pilot uh, to really see these, these uh, benefits. And I think, um, also, you know, in the external world, there's a lot that needs to be reflected in new regulations, um, guidelines, also, um, you know, how in the future the regulators will evaluate um, uh, marketing authorization applications based on um, additional data that haven't been included before, potentially, you know, um, genomics data. Um, equally for patients, how they feel about um, the use of this information and potentially more broad uh, examination of their genomic profiles, etc. And um, all of these things um, need to be considered. And I think they're the, 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 the areas we need to focus on the most in the coming years in order to really uh, achieve the ambition that we have to to bring in the the kind of um, value of of big and real world data and and all data that's available now digitally that that you know <laughs> continues to expand every day. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think in general people and and patients are open to that change and kind of are understanding those benefits that you alluded to there? Um, it's an interesting question. I think people are beginning to see, um, and I think that there are a few things that have enabled us to be in a, a better place. Um, I think with the COVID-19 pandemic, the relationship between pharma and um, patients has changed again. So I think there is to a somewhat degree, a greater level of trust um, there. So I think that is enabling us on the journey a little bit. I think that, you know, the face has changed in the last couple of years. Um, I think that um, there is 
important there are important things to communicate so at the same time as we're moving to decentralized trials and and um you know treatment at home wherever possible telemedicine um you have to balance with that with the fact that if we have an ambition in the future to make more use of um patient data that we do need to always still have blood draws um you know at regular time um intervals during treatment so um you know, there has to be that communication of the value of this to patients. And I think, you know, as we we continue, I think there are a huge or there is huge value to to the future of, of patients really owning their digital profile, um, the ability of them being able to share that uh, more broadly using new technologies such as blockchain and, and so on and, and be able, being able to do that confidently and securely. But, you know, that offers them also the opportunity to have a second or a third expert opinion from a physician in another country. Um, and, and some of these, you know, um, activities are already being instituted by um uh you know the european commission and, and so on and it's, it's fantastic um I, I think you know these collaborations at, at the moment are generally enabling uh sort of independent institutions or investigators to really benefit from this i think at present, um, you know, the commercial entities such as pharma and biotech are not really included in in that more broad access. And, and that's something that I think the dialogue still needs to continue about how that can be done appropriately um, in order to benefit in the end patient um, treatment, healthcare, you know, through more appropriate and, and really personalized identification of medicines. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. There are so many different kind of potential avenues, aren't there? I think it'll be exciting to see how it all pans out um, as time goes on. Um, so moving on now, um, as a leader, how do you balance driving forwards in your own career with nurturing and mentoring others to succeed in theirs? Um, so a really big passion for me is um, enabling uh, either my team or um, others within my organization, people that I come into contact with and have the opportunity to to work with. Um, you know, it, I think as a leader that the, the best and most important things you can do are support um, those people, uh, identify opportunities to help them build and, and grow their network as appropriate, helping them to make the connections. Um, you know, it's it's very challenging. Um, earlier on in your career, you you, you um, are so focused on delivering the results, and you're not necessarily sure about where you can go in the the longer term. And you know, at the same time, people expect you to know exactly where you're going and what your career um, path should be. Um, and sometimes it takes also somebody external. I think of you know one of my um, past great um, leaders and. Um, managers was really someone who um you know actually encouraged me to do something completely out of the box for me um and it really um you know helped me to see that I was more than than that that I appreciated I was so you know having the opportunity to to bring that um to somebody else is is really critical and and I I think you know it's something that I'm good at connecting people um you know listening and and really helping to see the opportunities and you know in in the end the people that that are you know coming after us are, are likely the the future leaders and the future opportunity and you know maybe you know 
far advanced in your thinking that, that so you know to help them you can really leave behind a, an even greater legacy through them that's brilliant and yeah I think you're right listening is is really key there isn't it it's kind of half the battle with with leadership and mentoring it's not just what you can impart on on others it's it's kind of listening and, and working through things together so you ended 2020 having run over a thousand miles and you're currently running a marathon a month, I believe. Yes. Um, what motivates you to test your personal limits in this way? <laughs> um, so I've for quite some time always set myself um, three goals a year um, personally um, outside of the work environment. And, and it's something that I also try to encourage with my children um, so that they see themselves achieving something and, and um, really, you know, how much and they can benchmark a little bit, you know, how much they're developing and, and able to achieve um, and working towards something. Um, and, and, you know, I also find for me, um, running is a, a huge part of my sort of mental protection, mental health protection, but also um, a huge sort of creative time. So I, it's often a time when I can, you know, think about things, um, be be mindful um, and, and, you know, things often kind of come together and, and I have an inspiration about how I might be able to do something in a better way or how things fit together. Um, so it gives me that, that headspace um, to be creative as well. Um, and it's something that I really also feel is important to to role model with my teams and and others that I work with. Um, last month, I was I was joined by a group of um, women that I had the pleasure of of mentoring in the group last year um, within Amgen, and and that was also really rewarding because when you when you see that people that um, you've worked with are, are are willing to join you in your craziness, um, you know it's it's uh, it's very inspiring, and um, you know I also feel a lot that you know I I'm in a very fortunate position with a you know a job that I love to do a team um, a family and you know being able to do things um, for others raising money for charities we've had you know some great ones this year is is really um, you know being able to give that back um, is equally important for me Um, and this year the marathon a month it's a new uh, new partner each month, a new uh, charity each, each month that they select. And it's also really to support others who who almost, you know, want to get started and do something like this, but maybe, um, you know, are not sure how or, you know, so we, we also support each other during the month on, um, you know, the training and, and um, getting involved and, and they committed to covering their, their miles or kilometers over the duration of the month. And, and then I commit to running a, month, a marathon in, in one day or whenever I have the time. That's amazing. Really, really inspirational. I'm, I'm the same with that kind of creativity and mindfulness on a run. I have some of my best ideas when I'm running, although I have to say I'm nowhere near your level. I wouldn't be doing um, a marathon a month at all. But yes, that that's great. And yeah, really nice that you can build kind of charity work into that as well to really give back. That's yeah, really inspirational. Thank you. Um, and with that, we've unfortunately run out of time. And um, that was an accidental pun there with the uh, <laughs> the running metaphor carrying on. Um, so it's been fascinating hearing your thoughts on communication and um, and data, amongst other things. So thank you so much, Emma, for your time and for joining us on the podcast today. 
Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. What an inspiring person. I'm very much in awe of Emma's ability to test her personal limits with her marathon running. Plus, there's definitely lots to take away there for us all on engagement strategies, the potential for data, and the importance of personal growth. Now, that's sadly all we have time for today. Thank you again to Emma for joining us on the podcast and thank you to you for listening. Be sure to tune in on Thursday for our exclusive interview with Dario Safaric about the next Pharma Summit and then next week when our usual schedule will resume. Until then, if you haven't done so already, don't forget to rate, comment and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. See you soon. 